God, what a privilege it is to gather together with your saints uh, on another Lord's Day, to be together, to lift up our voices in song, and to sit under your word. God, thank you for the love that you are producing and causing to abound at Grace Bible Church. It's so sweet to see people enjoy uh, being together and really just because the, of the union that we have with you, uh, we see such love just overflowing uh, from the hearts of the members here. God, I pray that that would only continue and that it would continue uh, because truth is being communicated, because truth is being received, embraced, applied, and submitted to. We know that you love uh, to see these things happening uh, among your children, just as uh, all of us parents enjoy watching our kids enjoy one another. And so we pray that we would continue uh, to bring you great joy uh, and delight as you see us interacting uh, with one another, practicing humility, um, and uh, laying hold of, of the truths that are being taught also that we can glorify you as we serve one another. God, as we talk about a, an often misunderstood and uh, overlooked subject, <clears throat> maybe not here, but uh, just in the world uh, generally, we pray that you would give us uh, ears to hear, give me a clear speech, and uh, let us just be unashamed of your word as it pertains to sin. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we are uh, picking back up in our series on sanctification. Uh, you'll remember that it wasn't too long ago that we covered six uh, lessons dealing with the subject of sanctification, being conformed to Christ's likeness. And uh, there's plenty more to be said. And so this morning, we'll start to say some of what there's plenty more to say. Uh, and we'll deal over the next few weeks at this next uh, portion of our series with the doctrine of hamartiology, hamartiology, that is the study of sin. Sin in our day is an often neglected and overlooked subject. Uh, even in Christendom, the subject of sin seems to be uh, an unwelcomed topic for discussion. Many times the average pulpit doesn't spend very much time here. And believers seem to regard the subject of sin as something that is sort of a necessary evil. Not sin itself, but just discussing the subject. Theologically speaking, this is something that has to be discussed, but should really be covered quickly and we should move on as soon as possible. And so this morning, 
I want to help just clarify uh, perhaps some things in in your mind uh, as we embark on this study of hamartiology with really reasons why to study sin. There are many good reasons to study the doctrine of sin, to study it often, to think of it deeply. We need these things, uh, all for the sake of sanctification. Uh, In the life of our church, at various points over the years, at least in my uh, almost 14 years now at Grace Bible Church, people have come and sat under the teaching for a time, enjoyed the fellowship, and eventually along the way have left the church over this issue. You guys focus on sin way too much. You talk about sin too much. You seem obsessed with the subject. And so some have determined that it would be better to attend a church unlike ours that doesn't spend so much time perhaps preaching about, teaching about, uh, discussing, counseling about sin. Scripture opposes the, the idea that focusing on sin uh, in a way that has you revisiting sin often, uh, thinking of it deeply, meditating on it well, is some sort of impediment to your godliness. It is not an obstacle to godliness. It, these kinds of views of sin are actually essential to your godliness. J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness, said this, He that wishes to attain right views about Christian holiness must begin by examining the vast and solemn subject of sin. He must dig down very low if he would build high. A mistake here is most mischievous. Wrong views about holiness are generally traceable to wrong views about human corruption. He says, we must begin low if we would build high. I am convinced that the first step towards attaining a higher standard of holiness is to realize more fully the amazing sinfulness of sin. And he is absolutely right in his assessment. The church needs in this time and always a right view of sin. And so this morning, I want to put before you seven reasons why you ought to study sin. Seven reasons to study sin. Number one, sanctification demands it. Sanctification demands that you study sin, that you study sin deeply and often, particularly your own. Go to Colossians chapter 3. This will help illustrate this. Hamartiology is essential to your sanctification. Paul tells this thriving, 
Colossian congregation in chapter 3, verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Paul is writing for the purpose of further establishing uh, this congregation in the sufficiency of Christ, the superiority of Christ. And a part of their continuing maturity in the Lord is that they would, according to verse 5, consider something. Consider something. They need to think regularly on this fact that your members, the members of your earthly body, are dead to, and then he gives them a list of sins. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, that which amounts to idolatry, uh, which is greed. And then he reminds them, verse 6, the wrath of God is coming for these very reasons, because of these kinds of sins. And he reminds them in verse 7 that they once walked in these things. He wants them to consider this. If he didn't want them to think about the fact that they used to walk in these particular sins, he would not be telling them and conjuring up these kinds of remembrances in their mind with these very words. And then he goes on in verse 8 and gives this command. Now you also put them all aside and then gives another list. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. These are things that he wants them to consider. And not, you even see in this passage, this is not a meditation on sin just for the sake of meditating on sin. That's obvious, obvious. I'm sure you understand that. He is not wanting them to be morbidly introspective and to just think of how depraved I really am so that they are a joyless group of people. Clearly, that's not what He's emphasizing that's not what he's aiming at, but he's calling these things to mind specifically in this passage so that, according to verse 8, they can put them all aside. They must put them all aside. If the Colossian congregation were to give cursory, have cursory views of sin then think about the way that that would impact their holiness. They haven't spent very much time, perhaps, thinking about the very things that Paul is telling them to put aside. So what does that do to their ability to actually follow the command and put them aside? 
They will be stunted in their growth, in their Christian maturity, and ability to put the very things aside that Paul is calling them to put off. Cursory thoughts of sin result in imperfect and insufficient views of holiness. So reason one why we should study sin is because our sanctification demands it. If you desire to be holy, you must know sin. You must be acquainted with sin biblically. You must be acquainted with sin personally. You must know these things. Reason number two to study sin is because Scripture encourages it. Scripture encourages the study of sin. If Scripture did not encourage us to study sin, then it would not be so replete with the tools to do so. What page of your Bible does not discuss sin? Maybe the first two. That's it. Every other page of the Bible includes virtually some sort of reference to this doctrine of sin. So the biblical writers speak often of sin. That's how we know scripture encourages the study of sin because, first of all, the biblical writers speak often of it. Also, as you think of the, your Bible from left to right, perhaps, just think of the different genres of scripture. Biblical narrative in Genesis. Biblical narrative describes sin constantly. Can you think of a full story in the Bible that had nothing to do with sin? Biblical narrative describes sin constantly. From Genesis 3 on, every story almost includes some reference to, description of, condemnation of, example of sin in thought, word, deed. Even the very first sin, if you look at Genesis 3, God wants us to be so well acquainted with this doctrine he gives us an idea of where sin originated on earth. In chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent is introduced. He's more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. He speaks to the woman, Eve, and he introduces a temptation to sin with a simple question. Indeed, has God said... Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? You know how the story goes. The woman falls for the temptation. Adam knowingly embraces the temptation, disbelieving God, and he sins. And even at this early point in human history, Scripture even gives us categories for thinking about Sin and temptation. In verse 6, 
when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, those are your categories. There's pleasure to be had. There's a determination in the mind that it's good for something, not off limits the way God had described it. And it could even make one wise. It was desirable for that purpose. She took from its fruit and she ate and gave it also to her husband with her and he ate. So already God through the prophet Moses is beginning to acquaint us with how to think about sin and the enticements that sin brings. Biblical narrative describes sin constantly. Also the law forbids and condemns sin. Another type of genre in your Bibles, when it comes to laws, actual uh, rules that God intends us to regulate our lives by, law, the law forbids and condemns sin. Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, you have a list of things not to do. These are a list of prohibitions that God requires strict adherence to. And in each of these laws is an express command to not engage in sinful behavior or sin at the thought level. So biblical narrative describes sin constantly. The law forbids and condemns sin. Also, sin is a topic of biblical poetry. As you think about the Psalms, I'm sure you can think of some Psalms that are notorious for emphasizing this subject. Psalm 32 is one of those Psalms. Verse 1, David writes, How blessed is he! whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom Yahweh does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This is a topic of biblical poetry, sin is. And you can even see here uh, where a believer might say, you know, we, we don't need to focus on sin so much. We should focus on grace and mercy and forgiveness. Anyone who draws that kind of distinction between sin and those precious truths that we all love is misunderstanding those precious truths that we all love. Because here... The blessing that David is speaking of, the forgiveness that he's describing, those things can't be discussed accurately without some sort of reference to sin. If David is going to accurately uh, describe the blessing that comes from imputed righteousness, from forgiveness, as he does in this psalm, even as he reflects on his own sin, 
and the effects, if we were to read the rest of the psalm, we would see the effects of uh, dwelling in sin that it had on him. It's, it's really the comp- contemplation of him when he was in sin, of repenting from that sin that produces these statements about blessing and forgiveness that's available. So if he were to shortcut his meditation and deep reflection on sin, then he would fail to actually grasp how blessed the man is whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Again, cursory views of sin result in inadequate, trivial views of forgiveness. Not only is sin a topic of biblical poetry and the law and narratives, but the prophets discuss this at length over and over. They bring to unbelieving Israel what their sins are. They confront them to consider these these sins that they're guilty of. But this isn't even an Old Testament issue. We're talking Old Testament thus far. Jesus also preached against sin. If you just scan the Sermon on the Mount, chronologically in in your Bibles, Jesus, really his first sermon in Matthew 5, where this begins, how many issues of sin... Does he address? You have uh, in the Beatitudes references to those who mourn, that is, over sin. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You have a reference to the pure of heart. Those are the things that we're called to be. And this person who practices these things is identified by Jesus as blessed. But in the flow of the sermon, he discusses things like anxiety and worry, idolatry, adultery, anger or murder, divorce, sexual immorality, uh, personal retaliation and uh, to conflicts in conflicts. In chapter six, he talks about. Practicing your righteousness before men. Hypocrisy that the Pharisees were characterized by. He talks about a love of wealth and earthly possessions. Again, anxiety. He talks about the hypocrisy that would judge others for sins that have not yet been rooted out of your own life. Jesus is in preaching against sin thoroughly discusses the subject. And so because Jesus preached against sin, then it is worth studying. And then obviously the apostles followed in that example. The apostles also preached against sin. Uh, In Acts 2, Peter is preaching against the, the sinners present 
uh, there on Pentecost. Uh, so this would have been evangelism for unbelievers. And he accuses them, points the finger, you crucified Christ. Accuses them of sin, calls them out specifically. But this wasn't just an evangelistic strategy. Because in a book like Romans, where Paul is writing to a congregation he's never visited personally. uh, But he recognizes that they're a, a healthy church or a good church. They're filled with goodness, full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to instruct one another. And what it, where does he start? Romans 1, a discussion about total depravity, even to those who have not received God's revelation. From verses 18 to 32, a discussion of God's handing people over who persist in sin. And then chapter 2, a similar discussion, but for people who have God's word, the Jews. He talks about how they're guilty as well. And then chapter 3, you get that thorough description of all of mankind, Jew and Gentile, since chapters 1 and 2 have already been covered. Then everybody is under the righteous condemnation of God. And he articulates those Old Testament passages, stringing those together in chapter 3 to just accentuate the just condemnation of God against sinful humanity. There is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. For a New Testament audience, they are being reminded of these things. Why? Because it's good. It is instructive for this church, for believers. They need to know who they once were. They need to remember and recall what they were guilty of and the judgment that was hanging over them as they persisted in sin. This is for the New Testament church. This type of thorough acquaintedness with sin. So it's certainly the apostles preached against sin uh, in evangelism for unbelievers, but also in epistles, this appears in epistles for the church. So for those first two reasons, we must study sin. Sanctification demands it. Scripture encourages it. And thirdly, the cross includes it. The cross includes it. Homartiology is embedded in the gospel. A study of sin comes as a package deal with the good news of the gospel. Any gospel proclamation devoid altogether of sin is not the gospel. The gospel cannot be preached without this crucial element present. When preaching the gospel, sin must be explained, even as we see Paul, who told the Romans he was eager to preach the gospel to them, then he launches into a discussion about sin. 
So when preaching the gospel, sin must be explained. For salvation, sin must be understood. Anyone who does not understand sin cannot understand why Jesus even came. Look at 1 Timothy 1. Paul makes this point. As he talks to Timothy uh, and helps Timothy shepherd the men teaching error in Ephesus. He even uses himself as an example of someone who was ignorant and making confident assertions about which he knew nothing about. And in verse 15, he holds out this hope. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason, I receive mercy. That's like a, even I receive mercy. So that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. You cannot understand why Jesus came if you do not understand that you are a sinner. And so this subject is worth studying. When preaching the gospel, sin must be explained. For salvation, sin must be understood. In salvation, sin must be lamented. It is a grief over sin that occurs when someone finally turns to Christ. Uh, They lament their sin and what they've made of themselves in sin. And so to receive Christ finally, sin must be something that is feared. Just think about the terms in which sin is described It is something, according to uh, Romans 5, that we need rescue from. So Paul says this in Romans 5, uh, verse 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God does what? He demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Sin put us in a state in our helplessness. Sin put us in a state from which we needed to be rescued. We needed to be rescued from the wrath of God in that sinful state. We were enemies of God. We needed to be reconciled to God, verse 10. And then again, having been reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more than we shall be saved by his life. If sin is not feared, then it's not treated as something from which we need deliverance. As something that we should stay far away from. And so having a thorough acquaintedness with sin, thinking rightly about this 
doctrine will aid us in seeing it as something from which we want to stay far away from. Fourthly, uh, the new nature allows it. Since the new nature allows a study of sin, then we should study it. Think about who you were before Christ. You, the only knowledge we had of sin before Christ was a, experientially that we enjoyed it. We, we enjoyed living in sin, practicing sin, the ones that were convenient for us. We despised, obviously, even before Christ, sins that were committed against us. But this new nature actually allows us to, for the first time, see sin as it ought to be seen. That's a compelling reason, I think, to actually study it. Before you couldn't have an accurate view of sin. And so now God has given you a new nature, uh, a heart that loves his wisdom, that can see things as he sees them, that has the word illuminated uh, for us that can shine light on our own understanding. It would be, it would be foolish, frankly, for God to give us a new nature that could finally see sin with clarity and expect us to not. We should study sin. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14 helps illustrate this. When, it, when Paul comments on the difference between the natural man and the man who is spiritual because he has the spirit, he says this, 1 Corinthians 2.14, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. These things uh, in the, the flow of thought here in 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 and following, Paul is uh, highlighting the other worldly nature of the gospel. When the gospel came to the Corinthians, just like when it comes to us, it's met with a heart that deems it foolish. When the natural man hears the gospel, because we're so confident in our own opinion and refuse to submit our thinking, our minds to the wisdom of God, when the wisdom of God comes, we deem it foolishness, obviously. We don't see it as we ought to. And so you, I'm sure you can even think of times when you heard the gospel, perhaps, before you believed it. And someone told you, described for you, your sin, told you it was sinful and was something to be repented of, rescued from. And you disregarded that instruction. It was foolish to you. You disagreed with that assessment. And all of your self-proclaimed wisdom, you made a foolish assertion and thought, that's nonsense. I don't need to be rescued. I'm fine. 
It's because of this very statement that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man doesn't accept the things in the Spirit of God because they're foolish and you can't accept or understand them because what does it take? It takes the Spirit making you able to spiritually appraise those things. Oh, I do need to be rescued from my sin. My sin is so bad that what it takes to rescue me from it is nothing less than the perfect son of God taking on human form and being subject to death. That's what it takes to save me. I can remember uh, hearing the gospel uh, in 2008 more clearly than I had ever heard it up to that point. And even though it wasn't articulated this way for me, the way, it, the way I heard what I was hearing made me come to the conclusion for the 20 some odd years of my life, I've been thinking that I was a good person. I must not be a good person because that's what it took to save me. God himself enduring the wrath of God because of my sin. And all of a sudden, because the spirit had changed my heart in a moment, it finally made sense why the rest of the people in my world at the time that I had been comparing myself to, thinking, well, I'm better than them. God approves of me because I'm not doing what they're doing. That made, that finally sounded like foolishness. (laughs) The new nature enables us, finally allows us to have a proper view of sin. And for that reason, we should take the opportunity to study sin, to see it properly. That's reason four. Reason five, why we should study sin is because heart shepherding requires it. Heart shepherding requires that we study sin. You cannot accurately assess your own heart and accurately change your heart, turn your heart in the way it should go if you give cursory views to sin. It won't happen. You will fail to change if you have short-sighted views of your own sin. And if there's an area of your life where you perhaps find that you are failing to change, then you should give thought to whether you have accurately uncovered the nature of the very sin that you have your eye on. If you haven't thought deeply about it, then it should be no wonder to us that we don't master it more quickly. Heart shepherding requires that we study sin. Think about what Solomon is doing in the first chapter of Proverbs 1. So many of these early Proverbs, and really, by implication, all of the Proverbs are addressed to his son. Uh, They're for Solomon's own son. And then by extension, the, the nation of Israel and subsequent generations like, uh, like ours. But think about what he's doing as he's writing these words for the youth, according to chapter 1, verse 4, 
these Proverbs that Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, wrote are for discretion, for giving knowledge and discretion to the youth. And then he spends quite a bit of time describing for his son the sins that he's supposed to avoid. He helps his son study the deceptiveness of sin. Uh, In this first section, in verse 8 and following, he's describing uh, sinful companions, sinful friendships, violent men who he needs to stay away from. So verse 10, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. And he gives this instruction. My son, do not, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. Why not go with them? For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. And such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. He, as a wise parent, is trying to instill sense in his young son by describing the danger of having these kinds of friends. Don't do it. You'll lose your life living that way. That popular passage, Proverbs 4.23, that commands heart shepherding, Keep your heart with all vigilance. Proverbs 4.23 Keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. There's the command to guard the heart, to be watchful over the heart. How to do that? Solomon's been putting on display all the way up until that verse In the book of Proverbs. What's a part of heart shepherding? This study of sin. These warnings against sin. Look at verse 14 in the same chapter. And look at all the commands that he gives regarding sin. Do not enter the path of the wicked. And do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. Wow, Solomon, why are you spending so many words, so much time giving all of these commands specifically with reference to sin? This is six commands in two verses with regard to what he calls the path of the wicked or the way of of the evil people. Why, Why are we spending so much time talking about sin Well, because it's for your own good. 
It's from love for his son that he spends the time to unpack sin for him so that he's not so easily deceived by it. He's warned against it. He's afraid of committing it. As you know, if you've read this book, he spends lots of time talking about the sin of adultery. Chapters 5, 6, 7 include warnings against adultery. Even um, he tells a story about a foolish youth who takes the wrong way home. You know, is willing to meet this uh, wayward woman on the way home. And he even ends that section in chapter 7 with a command, verse 24, And now, O sons, listen to me. Listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Why? For many a victim has she, the adulterous woman, laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. You can't win the battle against adultery if you put yourself in the position to commit the sin. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. You have a death wish? You want to flirt with death? Play with lust. And so he spends time unpacking sin for the good of the recipients of these words. Uh, This is akin in, in heart shepherding as you think about your duty to do this, to Tell your heart what to do, what to think, what to feel as you intentionally bring all of the various faculties of your heart, your inner self, in submission to God's will as he's described it in his word. That is what heart shepherding is. And as you do that, uncovering sin in heart shepherding, becoming more acquainted with sin, really could be compared to studying an enemy's battle plan. You've got to go to war with sin in your practice of heart shepherding. And so just like a wise general would study his own enemy's battle plans, this is what we're doing with sin so that we can master it. So be acquainted with sin in your heart shepherding. This is required. Anyone who looks long and hard at their hearts anyway will become acquainted with sin. Even the believer. Can't be avoided. We're in a mixed condition. We're not glorified yet, which means that there is a good principle in the regenerated, redeemed heart. There's a desire, uh, an inclination even to love God, to be with his people, to love his word. But that's not all that's there. We have mixed motives, mixed desires. And so any sincere pursuit of heart shepherding to be acquainted with your own heart is going to result in a very 
good familiarity with sin. Reason number six to study sin is that the church needs this. The church needs this. And we've already uh, talked about this a little bit from Romans 1 and 3. The church is intended to have hamartiology, to have a, a, a study of sin, an acquainted with an acquaintedness with sin. Uh, we need to know more of our sin before Christ. That's why you get constant reminders. Don't forget who you used to be. Right? You're ashamed of those things now. That's good. Keep that up. Remember Gentiles, who you once were, separate from the life of God, alienated, estranged from the promises. So we need to know about our sin and about ourselves before Christ. We also need to know about our sin after Christ. Paul makes a present, uh, a present tense evaluation of himself when he says, I am, that's presently, the chief of sinners. And it's also helpful to know about the sin in unbelievers as you seek to win people to Christ. This is necessary. So the church, to be effective in carrying out the Great Commission, making disciples, this is all a part of that. Recognizing and preaching sin to unbelievers, remembering and knowing who we were before Christ, and being well aware of who we are after Christ and what our relationship is to sin. The church needs it for those reasons. Finally, reason number seven. Reason number seven to study sin is because heaven disallows this. Heaven is when you and I will finally put off an acquaintance, uh, an acquaintedness with our own sin. That'll be a glorious day. Have you considered that for the time being, you can study sin, but only for the time being can you grow in your acquaintedness with your own sin? The day will come when you are unable to search your heart and find any sin there. And we look forward to, we anticipate that day, we long for that day, but even more so, do this while you have opportunity. You won't always. Solomon gives this command to his son in Ecclesiastes 9.10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Now that's a specific reference to life under the sun. Things like enjoying your wife. Uh, putting, working well. Finding enjoyment in your work. The principle holds true as well, though, uh, in, when it comes to studying sin. It's a temporary activity. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 reminds us of this, that our sanctification will be complete one day. Paul says, now, to, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. 
And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved, complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Paul's prayer. That's his desire for the Thessalonians. Uh, And that, as true as it will be one day of the Thessalonians, will be true of us as well. That sanctification will be entirely completed by God himself. And so you won't have any sin any longer. Finally, Revelation 21 makes this point. John says in verse 1 of Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Those first things, a part of those first things, is a study of your own sin. There won't be any mourning, any crying, any pain, things that sin has produced Things that sin warrants, like mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. Right? We read. This has everything to do with increasing in our holiness. Again, this is not to be morbidly introspective that we should study sin. Any any believer who is only made sorrowful from a study of sin, is not studying sin accurately. They just lack the full picture. It's right to mourn over sin. It's right to grieve because of our own sins against God and against each other. Paul illustrates that well in 2 Corinthians 7. Godly grief is appropriate because of sin. But alongside that, to study sin, which should include what Christ did for sinners, should make us not stop at grief, but ascend to joy. And so over the next few weeks, several weeks, I want to help us do just that, to lament over sin as we see sin rightly. But then as we see sin rightly, to also ascend higher and rejoice in what Christ has done for sinners. So that's where we're going. Uh, Stick around. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for, for your word that gives us clarity that we would be completely, uh, 
unable to grasp on our own. It tells us how we should be thinking uh, where we would not know otherwise. And even conclusions that might seem reasonable to us, Scripture provides the right correction and right balance where we need it. And so I pray for my own heart, for the saints at Grace Bible Church, that as we delve more deeply into understanding sin, understanding what an affront it is to you, as we learn and are reminded uh, what is happening in our hearts when we turn to sin and away from you, uh, what our hearts are communicating about you in those uh, unfortunate moments, that you would help us to be sensible and to think rightly, and that we would find ourselves rejoicing at the clarity that your word gives for us to see our sin. Only you could produce that. Only you could make us rejoice at the sight of something so ugly as sin. Uh, Not because it is sin, but we would rejoice, God, uh, to know that we are thinking your thoughts after you and that we are being uh, made to grow in holiness into Christ's likeness so that we can bring you more glory during the short time that you've given us on earth. Uh, Bless this morning's service, God. We pray that you would receive all the glory for everything that happens this morning. In Christ's name, amen.